Well, as you remain standing, I encourage you to take up your copy of God's Holy Word and turn with me now to Paul's letter to the Philippian church and chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I will begin reading at verse 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things, and the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your holy word. We praise you for who you are. We rejoice in your goodness and Stand in awe of your perfect wisdom, a wisdom that is beyond compare, full of truth and goodness, and applicable to each of our lives. And we thank you for our Savior, Christ Jesus, in whom we have life and everything that is needed to confidently bring our petitions before you. Therefore, we ask that you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit in power to Attend to the preaching and the hearing of your word, knowing that your word does not return void, but it will accomplish what you please, and it will prosper in the thing for which it was sent. So we pray that you will use this text and this message to strengthen us in your peace and make us steadfast in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in his mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. See if I can do this without a sippy cup this morning. So every now and then, you run across one simple little phrase, one simple little sentence that just sort of sticks with you and, and rolls around in your mind and provokes thought throughout the week, and such has been the case with me this morning. I was, I was looking at Twitter or X or whatever we call it, and I saw some, this from Pastor Christopher Brigno, he wrote one little line that said, we need more rustic preaching. Rustic preaching. So it was one of those phrases that I said, rustic, what is rustic preaching? And as I thought about it, I thought, maybe, maybe what he's talking about is, is those things in life that we use every single day. You know, it's not the, the fine china and the crystal that we put high up on a shelf and that maybe we get out once a year at Christmas time 
and we polish the silver once a year, and we worry about breaking things, and we handle it very carefully. It's not, it's not the fine dining room table that's highly polished and has that pad on it that we really don't ever sit at except that one time a year. No, it's, it's something, it's that kitchen table with all the, with all the dents and the marks on it and the chips that, that we just live comfortably in. It's that, it's that comfortable pair of shoes that you choose over every other shoe that you could possibly choose, and, and you live in it, and you wear in it. It's rustic. It's earthy. It's applicable. And I thought, you know, that's true. Our brother has something true there, but I'll check with him here in a few weeks when I get to see him, Lord willing, and see what he had in mind when he was talking about rustic preaching. I don't know anything about rustic preaching, but I would this morning pray that the Lord would be pleased to use this simple message and apply it to our lives and cause us to think about these things and that he would use it by the power of his Holy Spirit to to sanctify us in his truth. And so as we begin this morning, I want to share this that I ran across this week as well. It was in 1875 that the avowed atheist William Ernest Henley wrote his best-known poem entitled Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. It is short, and I will read it in full now. It goes, Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Perhaps you've heard this poem. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, I am the captain of my soul. In writing about this poem, John Bloom observes this. This poem has inspired millions. Famous and infamous alike have drawn courage from it. Nelson Mandela recited it on his darker days in prison, and Timothy McVeigh invoked it as he received lethal injection for murdering 167 people in the Oklahoma City bombing. Henley wrote this during the heady days of Victorian-era enlightenment when the air of Darwin and Nietzsche felt bracing and fresh and when Christianity looked, as it has so often, to be gasping toward extinction. And yet such verses could only be written in the safety and prosperity of a Europe still governed by the ethics of Western Christendom. One reason this poem has the power to inspire is that it taps into a a courageous resolve, but, but sadly one that is counterfeit of true virtue. Virtuous courage, you see, is is outward focused and involves dying to self for the sake of others, and doing so in the strength of the Lord. And I hope that you can see that this poem falls far, far short of that mark. 
Henley was 27 years old when he wrote Invictus. Having battled tuberculosis of the bone for years, which cost him a leg and eventually killed him at age 53, Henley didn't believe that there was any larger purpose to his pain. And so he, he shakes his fist at God in this poem, resolute in his stoic embrace of the bludgeonings of chance. The author of this poem was a man who had drunk deeply of godless Darwinian worldview. He had embraced the nihilism of Nietzsche and the materialism of Marx. He embodied the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. And so, as a fool, Henley refused to look to his creator and chose instead to look inwardly and declare, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And then, in the early 1900s, young Dorothea Day had been attracted to Henley and his philosophy. But when she later converted to Christ, Dorothea took each line of his blatantly humanistic poem and wrote an inspiring Christian answer, which she entitled, My Captain. So hear her poem and compare it to Invictus. Out of the night that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since His the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under that rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with Him and His the aid, despite the men menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. And that's quite a contrast, isn't it? Quite, quite an indictment of the dark and meaningless worldview of Henley. You see, the greatest need of our souls is to be conquered by the self-sacrificing, sinner-serving Christ, to be redeemed and given a new nature and an eternal purpose. The simple fact is that both supernatural and natural evil will leave us bloody at times. Against such evil and by all righteous means, we are called to stand fast, to rejoice in the Lord, and to let our gentleness be known to all. The incredibly good news is that in Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, we are more than conquerors. Ours is not a stoic resolve against the evils flowing from random chance. Ours is a hope-infused, courageous resolve because, come what may, the end will be glorious beyond all comparison and we will know the pleasure of our God. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, For we consider the sufferings of this present time are not to be worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When Christ is the master of our fates and the captain of our souls, we have nothing to fear. We will be sustained to the end with our scroll declaring the verdict, Not guilty. And though we die, yet shall we live. 
and when the trials come, when the worry and fear would overwhelm our souls, Paul delivers the Holy Spirit-directed instruction to the Philippian church to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so here we find us at this point in the letter, in the main body of Paul's letter completed. And Paul has already begun the conclusion to the letter with a section that incorporates many of the key themes we find in Philippians. He began with a series of general exhortations designed to facilitate further growth in the Christian life. And we covered two of those in the message last week. Three, if you count the repetition. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and let your gentleness be known to all men. The message this morning will focus on two of the remaining four additional commands, as well as the promises that accompany these commands. But before we get there, I think it would be good to take a moment to briefly review the commands to rejoice and to be known by our gentleness We do well to remember that the joy that characterizes the Christian life is not one that ignores the struggles of this world. Instead, it is experienced in the midst of those struggles as we experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in our lives. The secret to a life of Christian contentment is not avoiding difficulties, not embracing them in a stoic proclamation that we are the captains of our own souls, but rather that Christ is sufficient for all we need in, through, and out of those very difficulties. When we as believers embrace this reality and live it out, we will discover that we are a most blessed people because Christ is the captain of our souls. This is the opposite of foolishness. It is wisdom, wisdom from above that is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It is a fruit of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. It is the peace of God to those who belong to the God of peace. Regarding this first command, Paul gives, rejoice in the Lord always. Stephen Fowle provides this definition of joy. Joy is not so much a spontaneous emotion as a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in particular ways and are able to act in conformity with that unfolding story. Joy is the appropriate response when one rightly perceives the unfolding of God's drama of salvation, even in the midst of suffering and opposition. The importance of joy in the Christian life is so important that Paul repeats himself for emphasis. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul's point could not be clearer. Joy is to be one of the defining marks of a believer, regardless of the circumstances. His third command, let your gentleness be known to all men, we covered in greater detail in last week's message. We should demonstrate the gentleness that God has shown us in Christ, even 
the gentleness He showed us even when we were His enemies. Our lives should be characterized by the gentleness that displays that we no longer seek our own rights, but look forward to the day when Christ will set all things right. That day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this brings us now to the fourth command, which is be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Reading this command in context, and given the realities of opposition to the gospel from those outside the church, the potential dangers of false teachers who promote a return to the Mosaic law, the presence of those who walk as enemies of the cross, and the internal conflict that he had described between Euodia and Syntyche, the presence of anxiety in this church is quite understandable. Nonetheless, Paul warns against it. He warns against this anxiety. And his words are reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, where Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. But, but, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And in this passage, Jesus identifies four things we should keep in mind, which could be summarized as, Remember the Father's love for His people. Remember God's sovereignty. Remember God's provision. And redirect your priorities accordingly. Paul's exhortation is utterly consistent with the Lord's instruction when he exhorts the Philippian church not to be anxious about anything. One helpful definition of anxiety is that it is it is interest paid on a debt you may not even owe. Have you heard that one? Think about it. Paying interest on a debt you may not even owe. Where is the wisdom in that? At root, sin, sinful anxiety as opposed to appropriate concern is a failure to believe the sovereignty and love of God at a practical level. Anxiety takes root in the heart doubts, doubts the sovereign love and care of a heavenly Father who sent His only Son to die for our sins. 
Instead of being anxious, Paul instructs believers to let your requests be made known to God. And obviously, it is not as if God is unaware of our wants and our needs if we don't happen to verbalize them to Him. After all, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We read that in Romans 8. And since Paul has commanded the Philippians not to be anxious about anything, it follows that the request in view here include anything, anything that might produce anxiety. Even the smallest matters can be brought before God as a, as a means of killing the roots of anxiety. And notice that these requests are to be made known to God. Our tendency can be to make our requests and needs known to others, though often they take the form of complaints. Believers are absolutely called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. But often we seek out help from others while neglecting, while neglecting to bring our requests before God Himself. That's the point here. And sometimes this reticence is rooted in unbelief that God either can or will do anything about our request. At other times, it springs from a deeply ingrained self-sufficiency. I am the captain of my soul. Yet no matter what its roots are, Paul calls us to let our request be known to God. We are to bring our petitions before Him, confident that He hears and cares as we pray in faith. To further expand on this idea of letting our requests be made known to God, Paul identifies the circumstances under which we should make our requests known, the means of making our requests known, and the attitude with which we should make our requests known. The circumstances are pretty straightforward in everything. In everything. In other words, you should not be anxious about anything, but instead in everything, make your request be known to God. Nothing is excluded as a legitimate matter of prayer, as if some matters are simply too trivial to bring before the God of the universe. Make no mistake. God wants you to pray for big and important things, such as the conversion of a loved one, but He also wants you to pray about the small things, the small things that threaten to provoke anxiety in your lives, that stir up fears, that bring on despondency and despair. Those everyday details of life are those matters which you should bring before the Lord your God. And the means of making your requests known to God is by prayer and supplication. And this combination of prayer and supplication is common in Scripture. Paul calls for supplications and prayers to be offered for all people, 1 Timothy 2.1. Later in that same letter, he describes the righteous widow who continues in supplications and prayers night and day. While the word for prayer has more the general sense of addressing God, speaking to God, supplication carries the specific sense of an urgent request to meet a need, 
exclusively addressed to God. You do not have because you do not ask, James instructs his readers. So bring your petitions and your requests before the Creator. And then the attitude which which we should make our requests known to God is with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. The act of making our request to God by means of prayer and supplication is to be done with a grateful heart, with thanksgiving. This is thanksgiving rooted in the character of God who is sovereign, faithful, wise, good, and so very generous. But it is also connected with the act of making the request themselves. As we make our requests known to God, we should thank Him in advance for His answer to these requests because by faith we believe that God is our loving Father and in His perfect timing He will answer according to His glory and for our good. Sadly, for many believers and even for many churches, prayer is not a first priority, but rather a last resort. As long as things happen according to our desires and things are going along pretty well and we, our plans are falling in line, we often see very little reason to pray. And when you think about it that way, there's really very little difference between this way of thinking and the perspective that Henley brings in his poem. But as Bachmule observes, biblical faith sees prayer as a counsel not of despair, but of confidence, not as a last resort, but as the open-handed yet passionate and persistent integration of human hopes and fears into the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. God knows you intimately. He knows your frame perfectly. He loves you purely and uses your anxieties to drive you to prayer when your own comfort will not do that. It is part of His sovereign work in your life. In most cases, the revival of God's people and the awakening of sinners from their spiritual deadness are connected to God first moving His people to pray for that very thing. To pray in anticipation of what great thing He will do. A prayerless life is the sign of a self-sufficient person. A prayerful life is the sign of a God-dependent person. We are all God-dependent people, and therefore we should pray. And a key component of a prayerful life is thanksgiving. Gratitude is far, far more important than most people realize. When Paul describes humanity's rebellion against God, he grounds it in ingratitude. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1.21 Fundamental to our rebellion is a failure to be grateful to God for who He is and what He has done. In fact, gratitude should form the very context of our entire life. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3. 
The fact is that a lack of gratitude reflects a lack of understanding of the gospel. Where gratitude is lacking, the gospel is not only misunderstood, but it is also misapplied. How can we possibly, how is it even possible to be grateful to God for His amazing love and mercy shown to us, to God? How can we not be grateful? How can we not continually recall this and be thankful? How can we not be grateful to Christ for living the life we should have lived and dying the death that was due as the penalty for our sin? How can we not be grateful for the Spirit who produces His fruit in our lives and empowers us to reflect the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? As Paul continues, he he provides the result and the promise that comes from making your requests known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Such a comforting thought, such a comforting promise. The peace of God. This this phrase is a shorthand for the resulting state of God's consummate salvation. Here in verse 7, Paul indicates that you, you don't need to wait for the consummation of all things to experience God's peace, but you can experience this peace now, in the present, day by day. This peace comes from God Himself, and as such, it differs from that which the world offers. All that the world can offer is a peace that is based on circumstances that happen to be favorable. And hypocritically, they even declare peace, peace, when there is no true peace. The peace of God, by contrast, is rooted in the character of God, who is a loving and sovereign Father, who works for His glory and your good. And such peace is not limited to you as an individual. The peace of God is a reality that is corporately experienced when the church is marked by fervent prayer. That corporate reality is reflected in the blessing that God instructs Aaron to pronounce over the, peace of it, over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The, the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. And give you peace. The peace of God. And then Paul expands on this peace of God by adding that it surpasses all understanding. It is transcendent. It is beyond your natural apprehension and requires the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The deep and abiding sense of peace that you can experience in the midst of difficult circumstances is ultimately something that cannot be explained by reason alone. God's gift of peace to you as a result of making your request known to Him is rooted in a trust in God that clings to His goodness, faithfulness, and sovereignty, often in the face of circumstances that challenge your trust in Him. It it is this kind of peace of God that Paul asserts will guard your heart's and your minds. And guard is the operative word here. The peace of God is a sentinel, a protection, a keeping. The peace of God is portrayed as if it were a a Roman soldier diligently protecting your heart and mind from the attacks of your enemy, from the difficulty of your circumstances, 
and from the sinful desires that threaten your soul. When Paul claims that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds, he likely uses the two terms together, heart and mind, to speak of your entire internal existence. Heart refers to your emotions or dispositions. Amid difficult or uncertain circumstances that produce anxiety, it is easy to allow your emotions to run wild, is it not? But sadly, this only intensifies the anxiety you are experiencing. But anxiety can also wreak havoc on your mind. One can say that Paul has in view the thoughts that come from your understanding. Anxiety brings its assault upon both your heart and your head. And you must not overlook that this guarding of your heart and mind takes place in Christ Jesus. It is by virtue of your union with Christ. The hearts and minds of God's people are guarded in the safety and security of Christ Himself. Christ Jesus is presented as the stronghold in which your heart and mind is kept safe from the ravages of anxiety. And it is prayer that grants you access to the safety of that stronghold that is only found in Christ. The promise contained here is one of the sweetest comforts you will ever know, as it reminds you that God's peace has already broken into this fallen world to be experienced and known by you individually and personally and us corporately. You are His child. We are His children. And we don't need to merely look forward to being found in Christ on the last day, but we are already being guarded and protected with God's peace as we walk in Him, as we know that we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be also helpful here to consider what is not meant by the peace of God. The peace of God referred to in this verse is often misunderstood to be a warm, fuzzy feeling that God promises to give, especially in making difficult decisions. Does that sound familiar? And so we often hear the expressions, I had a real peace about it, or I didn't have a peace about it. I believe I even used that phrase this week. But we need to take care here, knowing that this can be a poor and biblically unwarranted basis for making decisions. God often calls on His people to do things about which we have no subjective, warm, fuzzy feeling, such as sharing the gospel with a neighbor or denying ourselves some sinful pleasure. At the same time, your conscience may become so hardened toward particular sins that you experience a subjective calmness about an activity that is clearly forbidden in Scripture. Furthermore, using this mistaken understanding of the peace of God as an important element in decision-making has the tendency to elevate your subjective emotional inclinations to a level of authority that should be held exclusively by the Word of God. Furthermore, it can lead to neglecting the godly counsel of others in making decisions, as well as failing to engage in the rigorous personal process of decision-making that the Bible reveals as your God-given responsibility. Take a look at Proverbs 16 for further instruction there. And in so many situations, there is a ditch found in both sides of the road. 
on the one side, an emphasis on the peace of God as a subjective emotional calmness can lead you to think that almost any impulse you have is the leading of God in you, in your life, as long as it feels right. While on the other side, it can produce a paralysis paralysis that prevents you from following godly counsel and doing what God wants and has revealed in His Word. The bottom line is, trust God, not your feelings. Trust the Word of God and know the true peace of God. And then, when Paul begins verse 8 with the word, finally... He moves to summarize this whole section with a concluding exhortation that focuses on putting into practice what he has taught and modeled for the Philippians. And the final two commands Paul gives to the Philippians are to meditate on things that are full of virtue and to do things that they have learned, received, and heard from Paul himself. I had originally planned to include verses 8 and 9 in this message, but not wanting to shortchange these commands, I will reserve them for the next message as we conclude with those commands. And so hear this, brothers and sisters. This world is filled with people suffering from anxiety. You're well aware of that, I believe. This church has more than a handful of those who struggle with anxiety and fear and worry. And sometimes it seems as if anxiety is the necessary consequence and result of the harried, problem-filled lives that we live. And there are lots of remedies on the market, I suppose. For some people, especially those in the public eye, we see that Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, Celexa are a way of life and even a type of status symbol. All of their friends, or so it seems, have therapists. In looking for ways to manage your anxiety, you could consult a physician or check the self-help section at your bookstore, or more likely Amazon. But only one cure, one cure, was designed by the Creator who knows how you were put together from the inside out. He knows the very thoughts and intents of your hearts. He is the one who knows why your heart is unsettled by the factors of life that are beyond your control. And to find the peace that you long for, to silence the worries that keep you awake at night, what you need is nothing less than God Himself as your friend and Father and your ever-present protector in times of need and in times of abundance and blessing. This is the only place that you will find true peace, the peace of God. You need to find your joy in the Lord. Fix your hopes on Jesus. Fix your hope on His sure salvation. And you will find strength to react to hostility with gentleness rather than retaliation. Make Christ and Christ alone the captain of your soul. Know that He is the master of your eternal destiny. And don't forget to set your heart's anxiety alarm so that when you start to worry, when you begin to sense a rise in anxiety, you will know that it is time, high time,
to seek God's good gifts, especially Jesus, God's greatest gift. And then bring all the troubles and burdens that make you anxious to your Father. Lay your burdens on the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring them in prayer. Bring your petitions with thanksgiving, rehearsing His manifest goodness, for He is so very good. And let your requests be made known to Him, and then believe, believe His wonderful promise that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, your gentle Savior, your friend, your mediator, your Lord, and your God. Amen. Our good and gracious Father, we come to you now with thankful hearts, thankful that we can lay our burdens upon our gentle and lowly Savior, thankful that you hear us when we pray, thankful that we have no need to work for or be anxious for anything. For you will guard our hearts and minds safely in Christ Jesus and grant to us the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Help us, O Lord. Help us to know and to believe this today. Help help us to apply this truth to our hearts and minds and cause us to walk in your peace and your joy no matter the circumstances of life. Oh Lord, find us faithful in our calling. Find us faithful as we labor to provide for our families and to love one another well. Send your blessing upon us, your people, upon this, your church, and sanctify us according to your perfect and holy will. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, for the advancement of your kingdom, as we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.